Good morning, friends and family. Happy Good Friday. Happy Resurrection Day weekend, actually. So our study, we're now in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, through chapter 5, verse 43, called The Servant Conquers. This has been an amazing study, just like every single chapter that we've done. And I want to thank you for joining me. Thank you for studying God's Word. Thank you for being attentive to look up the Scriptures as you feel led of the Lord. And thank you for comments and encouragements along the way. I appreciate it. I appreciate each and every one of you. As I've said many times, we pray for each and every one that comes to the podcast, those that go to the YouTube channel. And um, we're just such a little tiny, uh, have outraged just to a few people, but you know, that's okay. We're not looking at the numbers. The Lord has always taught me in my heart to, to go after the one, that one who is searching and seeking God. And, um, so I'm actually not going after anybody. I'm doing exactly what God put on my heart and I'm putting the word of God out there in internet land. We are on everything from Spotify to Reddit to Outcast, uh, to, I even did some TikTok lately, if you can believe that. I think I did four or five TikTok, uh, videos about the Lord. I don't stay on there too long. There's a lot of, um, a lot of different things that I don't want to fill my mind with on there, but it is such a cute little (laughs) social place to go. Uh, they have so much to offer in the way of making little short 30 second or 60 second videos. Anyway, let's get started in our Chapter Mark 4, verse 35, we're starting there. The servant conquers. God's servant, Jesus Christ, is a master of every situation and the conqueror of every enemy. So if we trust him and we follow his orders, we need never, ever be afraid. Victory is a major theme that binds this um, whole section and Mark together. Mark recorded four miracles that Jesus performed, and each miracle announces even to us today the defeat of an enemy. Amen? The defeat of an enemy. So in chapter 4, verse 35, uh, the same day here refers to the day on which Jesus gave the parables of the kingdom. He had been teaching his disciples the word and and now he would give them uh, this practical test to see how much they had really learned how much they had learned through it how much they had grown through it so hearing of God's word the hearing of God's word is intended to produce fruit as we see in Romans 10 verse 17 and faith must always be tested It's not enough for us to just merely learn a lesson or be able to repeat a teaching. We we must 
also be able to practice that lesson by faith. And that's one reason that why God permits trials to come into our lives. You know, it gives us plenty of practicing room, right? So like Jesus, when he was in the storm, do you think he knew the storm was coming? Of course he, he knew. The storm was a part of that day's curriculum. So it would help the disciples understand a lesson that they didn't know that they even needed to learn. But Jesus, Jesus can be trusted in the storms of life. Many people have the idea that uh, storms come into their lives only when they've uh, disobeyed God. Like, you know, this storm came into my life because I, I blew it the other day. You know, I, I sinned. I hurt somebody's feelings. Whatever it was that you did, and the enemy th- will always throw it back on us, not to give him any credit. But... Um, So many times people do think that the storm came into my life because I have disobeyed God. But this this is not always the case. Jonah ended up in a storm because of his disobedience. Correct, he did. But the disciples go into a storm because of what? Because of their obedience to the Lord. So the geographic location say, let's look at, of the Sea of Galilee is such that a sudden violent storm or storms, are they're not unusual there. They're common there. The storm described here must have been especially fierce, though, because it, it frightened experienced fishermen. Think about that, like the disciples. They were very experienced on the, on the seas and, in, and through storms there. So there were at least three good reasons why none of these men in the ship should have been disturbed at all. Even though the situation, it it appeared to be threatening, I'm sure it wasn't anything they hadn't faced before. But to begin with, they had his promise that they were going to the other side, as it said in Mark uh, verse 35. His commandments are always his enablements. And nothing can hinder the working out of God's plans. He didn't promise an easy trip, but he did promise and he did guarantee arrival at their destination. So they already had the promise. And then second, the Lord himself was with them. So what was there actually to fear? They'd already seen his power demonstrated in his miracles, so they should they uh, should have had complete and utter confidence that he could handle this situation, and there should have been no fear. But for some reason, the disciples, they didn't yet understand that he was indeed, he was indeed the master of every situation. Finally, they could see that Jesus was perfectly at peace, even in the midst of the storm. This fact alone should have, should have encouraged them. Uh, it, it, it should have encouraged any of us. Jesus was in God's will and knew that the Father would care for him. So you know what? He laid down and took a nap. Jonah slept during a storm because he had a false 
false sense of security. So even though he was running from God, uh, he, he still had this false sense of security. So here in this storm, Jesus slept in the storm because he was truly secure in God. In God's will, I should say. So he says, uh, it says in Psalms 4 verse 8, he said, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep for thou, Lord, only markest Markest only makest me dwell in safety. So how often, you know, in the trials of life, we are prone to be intimidated. We're prone to be faithless. Disciples were prone to cry out, Lord, don't you care? Of course he cares. Of course he cares. He arose, he rebuked the storm, and immediately there's this great calm. But Jesus didn't stop with calming the calming of all the elements and the storm for the greatest danger was not the wind and nor was it the waves it was the unbelief in the hearts of the disciples come on let's get this today because this is totally we've got to look within our own hearts and see where we are and the lord helps us to do that through the word of god so let's really pay attention today to this message our greatest problems are within us they're not around us and and this basically explains why Jesus gently rebuked them and called them men of little faith they heard him teach the word and had they'd even seen him perform miracles and yet they still had no faith it was their unbelief that cause their fear. Many times it's our unbelief that causes us to have fear. And it was their fear that made them question whether Jesus really cared. So we've got to beware of that evil heart of unbelief as it speaks of in Hebrews 3 verse 12. This was only one of the many lessons that Jesus would teach his disciples in the familiar um, environment of the Sea of Galilee and each lesson would reveal some wonderful new truth about the Lord Jesus so they already knew that he had the authority to forgive sins they knew he had the authority to cast out devils to heal diseases now they're discovering that he even had authority over the wind and the sea So this actually meant that they had no reason ever again to be afraid. For the Lord was in control, constant control of every situation. And then as we go to chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, when Jesus and the disciples, they land on the other side, they entered two demoniacs. Uh, I mean, entered. They encountered two demoniacs, one of whom was especially vocal, as we see in Matthew 8, verse 28. And this entire scene here seems seems very unreal to us who live in so-called modern civilization. But it would be 
It would not be unreal on, say, many mission fields. Some Bible teachers believe that demon possession is becoming even more prevalent in today's modern society. And actually, in this year of 2021 and 2020, it has been very, very prevalent. Obvious, you can see it all around you, the people that need deliverance. So we see in in this particular scene, three different forces at work. There was Satan, there was society, and then there was our Savior. So these same three forces are still at work in our world today. They're trying to control the lives of people. So first we see what Satan can do to people. Satan is a thief whose ultimate purpose is to destroy See John 10.10, see Revelation 9.11. We're not told how these demons entered these men and took control, but possibly it was a result of their yielding to sin. Demons are unclean spirits, and they can easily get a foothold in the lives of people who cultivate sinful practices. So, you know, um, we need to be careful especially as Christians, about opening doors to sin because of the possible consequences. So because they yielded to Satan, the thief, these two men, they lost everything because of that. They lost their homes. They lost the fellowship of their families and friends. They lost their decency as they they ran around the tombs naked. They lost their self-control. They lived like wild animals, screaming, cutting themselves, and, and frightening the citizens. They lost their peace. They lost their purpose for living. That's where sin took them. And they would have remained in that particular plight had Jesus not come through a storm to rescue them. So never underestimate the destructive power of Satan. He's our enemy, and he would destroy each and every one of us if he could. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion. He seeks whom he may devour. See 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. It's Satan who is at work in the lives of unbelievers, making them, quote, children of disobedience. See Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. The two men in the graveyard were no doubt, no doubt, extreme, extreme examples of what Satan can do to people. But what they reveal is enough to make us want to resist Satan and have nothing to do with him. He's taking people down the furthest, longest roads, downhill all the way. The second force at work on these men was society, but society was not able to accomplish very much. And actually about all that society can do for problem people is to isolate them, put them under guard, and if necessary, bind them. See Luke 8, verse 29. So often these men had been chained, chained up But these demons had given them strength to break the chains. So even the attempts to tame these men had failed. With all of its wonderful scientific achievements, society still cannot cope 
with the problems caused by Satan and sin. So while we thank God that society does offer a limited amount of restraint and protection, we must confess that society cannot permanently solve these problems and deliver Satan's terrorized victims. So this brings us to the third force, and that is of the Savior. What did Jesus do for these men? To begin with, he graciously came to them in love and even went through a storm to do it. And some think that the storm itself may have been satanic in origin since Jesus used the same words to calm the sea as he did to cast out the demons. See Mark 1, 25 and 4, 39. Perhaps Satan was trying to destroy Jesus or at least prevent him from coming to the men who needed him, but nothing could stop the Lord from coming to that graveyard and bringing deliverance to those men. Not only did Jesus come to them, but he spoke to them and permitted them to speak to him. The citizens of the area avoided the two demoniacs, but Jesus treated them with love and respect. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. We must always keep that in mind, Luke 19 and verse 10. It's interesting to note that as the demons spoke through the man, they confessed that they really believed. So demons have faith and they even tremble because they know what they believe. They know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to destroy the works of the devil. Neither their faith nor their fear can save them. So demons believe, they know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has authority over them. They believe in the reality of judgment and that one day they will be cast into hell. See Matthew 8, 29. And this is more than any religious people believe today, actually. We've got to start believing correctly, people. We've got to believe what the Bible says. You know, a long time has went by and the churches have not taught the fullness of the truth of the word of God. We have a real enemy. He goes to and fro seeking whom he may devour. There is nowhere in the Bible that explains either the psychology or the physiology of demon possession. The man who spoke to Jesus was under the control of a legion of demons and a a Roman legion could consist of as many as 6,000 men. So it's frightening to think of the horrors this man experienced day and night as thousands of unclean spirits tormented him. No doubt the other demonized man experienced his share of agony too. Satan tried to destroy these men, but Jesus came to deliver them. By the power of his word, he cast out the demons and he set the men free. Demons even believe in prayer, for they begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss, the place of torment. 
See Mark 5, verse 7, Luke 8, 31. You know, so these are the things that we are supposed to be doing. We have been commissioned to cast out devils. And that is the very place that we should cast them back to the abyss, unable to torment anyone else. It's encouraging uh, to note that the demons, they did not know what Jesus planned to do. So this thoroughly suggests that the devil can know God's plans only if God reveals them. There's no real evidence in scripture that Satan can read the mind of a believer, let alone the mind of God. Mark 5 tells of three requests. The demons requested that Jesus send them into the pigs. The citizens requested that Jesus leave the area. And one of the former demoniacs requested that Jesus allow him to follow him. So our Lord granted the first two requests, but not the third one. So, you know, some might ask, did Jesus have the right to destroy 2,000 pigs and possibly put their owners out of business? Well, for one thing, if these men were Jews then they had no right to be raising and selling unclean pigs anyway. So this Gentile territory, or this was Gentile territory, so the owners were probably Gentiles. So certainly Jesus was free to send the demons wherever he desired, into the abyss, into the swine, or to any other place that he chose then why send them into the swine? For one thing, by doing it that way, Jesus gave proof to all the spectators that a miracle of deliverance had really taken place. So the destruction of the pigs also gave assurance to the two men that unclean spirits were actually gone out. But more than anything else, the drowning of the 2,000 swine was a vivid object lesson to to this particular Christ-rejecting crowd, that to Satan a pig is as good as a man. It didn't matter. So the enemy will make a man into a pig. We've got to remember that. When we are not serving the Lord, I've said this before, there are only two roads. You are either on the road the wide road that leads to destruction or you are on the straight and narrow road that leads to eternal life. There is no middle road. The Bible is very clear on that. You are all the way 100% into serving God or you are uh, serving Satan. The Lord was warning the citizens against the powers of sin and Satan. It was a dramatic sermon before their very eyes. The wages of sin is death. So the swine herds, they did not want to be blamed for the loss of the pigs, so they immediately ran to tell the owners what had happened. And then when the owners arrive at the scene, they're afraid 
as they beheld the dramatic changes that had taken place in the two men. So instead of running around naked, these men were now clothed, they were seated, and they were in their right minds. So they were new creatures. See 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is what Jesus does. He came to give us new life. So why would the owners ask Jesus to leave? Why not ask him to stay and maybe perform similar cures for others who were also in need? The owners, they had one main interest, and that was business. They were actually afraid if Jesus remained any longer, he would do even more damage to the local economy. So our Lord does not stay where he's not wanted. He never He never has. He, he is such a gentleman. So he, he leaves. What an opportunity these people missed. Think about that. What an opportunity they missed. Why did Jesus not permit the healed demoniac to follow him would be the question on some people's mind. The man's request was certainly motivated by love because uh, he had love for the Lord Jesus Christ and he had quite a testimony. But Jesus knew that the man's place was in his own home. That is our place. Wherever God has placed us, that's where we need to stay and minister and pray. So Jesus knew that his place was in his own home with his own loved ones where he could bear witness to the Savior. He could minister to those that were there. Effective Christian living, it you know, it's it begins at home where people know us the best. If we honor God there, then we can consider offering ourselves for service elsewhere. This man came or this man became one of the earliest missionaries to the Gentiles. So here Jesus had to leave, but the man remained and he bore faithful witness to the grace and to the power of Jesus Christ. We trust that many of those Gentiles believed on the Savior through his witness. Now as we get down here to chapter verse 21 through 34. One crowd sighed with relief as they saw Jesus leave, but another crowd was waiting to welcome him when he returned home to Capernaum. In that latter crowd stood two people who were especially anxious to see him. There's Jairus, a man with a dying daughter, and then there was an, an anonymous woman who had been suffering from an incurable disease. It was Jairus who approached Jesus first, but it was the woman who was first helped. So we we begin we'll, we'll begin with her. The contrast between these two needy people is is striking and it reveals the wideness of Christ's love and the wideness of his mercy. So Jairus was an important synagogue officer. And the woman was an anonymous nobody. 
She was actually nobody. Nobody knew her, yet Jesus welcomed, and he helped both of them. You know, guys, this is our example. This is the example for us. We have to be ready. We have such a great awakening of people coming in. We're getting ready for that time when millions are coming into the kingdom. They're going to come in in all different from all different fashions of life or um, positions of life, uh, whatever you want to call it. But you know what? We're going to have to be ready to help no matter who. No matter if they're a rich person with all sorts of luxury or if they're the lowest person on drugs or, um, you know, just a demon possessed or whatever. We have to be there to welcome and to help them all because they're going to need it. And I believe that we're in a time where God is raising us up and training us up to be who he's called us to be and use us for the kingdom's sake. So we have to be ready to help everyone. So Jairus was about to lose a daughter who had given him 12 years of happiness. We see that in Mark 5:42, and then the woman woman was about to lose an affliction that had brought her 12 years of sorrow. Being a synagogue officer, Jairus was no doubt wealthy, but his wealth could not save his dying daughter. So you know what? Money can do so much for us, but there are things that only God can do. And, and will do. But money can't buy everything. People idolize money, but money cannot buy everything. So the woman here, she was totally bankrupt. She had given the doctors all her money, yet none of the doctors could cure her. So both Jairus and this poor woman, they found the answer to their needs. Where? At the feet of Jesus, where all of us find our needs met. See Mark 22 and verse 23. The woman had a hemorrhage going on that was apparently incurable and was slowly destroying her. So we can only imagine the pain and uh, also the emotional pressure that sapped her strength every single day. I'm sure she was not feeling well at all. I'm sure she was not feeling strong at all. But you know, when you consider her, her many disappointments with the doctors and you consider her the, where it brought her to being totally in poverty, then you wonder how she endured as long as she did. And, and there was one added burden. According to the law, she was ceremonially unclean, which greatly restricted both her religious and her social life as well. So think about it. What a burden she carried. If we could just put ourselves in her shoes. But she let nothing stand in her way as she pushed through this crowd. As she pushed through to come to Jesus, she came to him. She could have used any number of excuses to convince herself to stay away from him. She might have said, I'm not important enough to ask Jesus for help. 
or she might have said he well he's gonna go with Jairus so I won't bother him right now she could have argued that that nothing else had helped her so why try again why try why try this nothing else had helped her or she might have concluded that it was just not right to come to Jesus as a last resort after asking all the physicians and putting giving them all of her money but this is what she did she laid aside all arguments she laid aside all excuses and she came by faith to Jesus now what kind of faith did she have it was weak it was timid and perhaps somewhat superstitious she kept saying to herself that she had to touch his clothes in order to be healed See Mark 3, verse 10. So she had heard reports of others being healed by Jesus. She made this one great attempt to get through to the Savior. She was not disappointed by any means. Jesus honored her faith as weak as it was, and he healed her body. And there's a good lesson here for all of us, because not everybody has the same degree of faith. But Jesus responds to faith, no matter how feeble it might be. And I want to encourage you today, no matter if you feel like you don't have much faith, still go to Jesus. And when we believe he, sh- he shares his power with us and something happens in our lives. I guarantee you, if you share yourself, if you go to him, if you with the little bit of faith that you feel like you have, Something happens and will happen in your life. Something beautiful, something wonderful, something great. So there were many others that were in the crowd who were close to Jesus and even pressing in against him. But you know what? They, they did not experience any miracles. And, and some people might ask why. There were so many people there. But because they did not have the faith. They might have been there, but they didn't have faith in him. So it's one thing to throng him and and quite something else to trust him. So if you've got the teeniest little bit of faith, you know the Bible talks about faith as a grain of mustard seed. Use it. Use it on Jesus. Trust him. He is so trustworthy. I'll tell you, friends, I have not only been saved and healed and blessed to the point of feeling like my, my, at, my life was just swooped up into heaven different times. And I just praise God for those experiences because they are ever so real always. They never fade. Jesus is right here. You may feel like you're all alone, but he's right here. He's standing right by you right now. He's sitting right by you right now. He's ready just to move in upon you and overtake you with his presence, his love, his glory. And that heals all. The women planned to just slip away and get lost in the crowd, but Jesus turned and he stopped her. And tenderly, he, he just, he looked at her. He listed her from her a wonderful testimony of what the Lord had done for her. 
And, you know, some might say, well, why did Jesus deal with her publicly? Why did he not simply just permit her to remain anonymous and go her way? Let me say for one thing, he did not, he did it for her own sake, actually. He wanted to be to her something more than just a healer. Let me tell you today, he wants to be something more to you than just a healer. He wants to be your savior. He wanted to be her savior. He wanted to be her friend as well. He wants to be your friend. He wanted her to to look into his face and feel his tenderness and hear his loving words of assurance. And by the time he finished speaking to her, she experienced something more than physical healing. He called her daughter. He sent her on her way with the benediction of peace. See Mark 5.34 To be made whole meant much more than receiving physical healing. Jesus had also given her spiritual healing as well. He dealt with her. (coughs) Excuse me. He dealt with her publicly, not only for her sake, but also for the sake of Jairus. So his daughter was close to death, and he needed all the encouragement that he could get. It was bad enough that the crowd was impeding their progress, but now this woman had to interfere, and she had to stop Jesus. And when one of Jairus' friends arrived and announced that the girl had died, no doubt Jairus felt that the end had come. Could you not almost cry at that moment when you think of him getting that report right then? The Lord's words to the woman about faith and peace must have encouraged Jairus as much as they encourage her. Jesus dealt with her publicly, but she might have the opportunity to share her testimony and glorify the Lord. The Bible says in Psalms Psalms 107, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. He sent his word and healed them. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. So, no doubt some people in that crowd heard her words and trusted in the Savior. And then when she arrived home, she already knew what it meant to witness for Christ. Now, as we come to chapter 5, verses 35 through 43, it was not easy for Jairus to come to Jesus publicly and ask for his help. The religious leaders, they were opposed to Jesus, and they would certainly not approve, nor would some of the other synagogue leaders approve. The things that Jesus had done and taught in the synagogues, they did this is what they did. They aroused anger of the scribes and the Pharisees. And and so some of whom were probably Jairus' friends, I would imagine, but Jairus was desperate. You know what? And a desperate people will do desperate things. As many people are when they come to Jesus, 
They're desperate. They're desperate. They, you come to a point where you don't care what your friends say. You don't care what anybody else says. You would rather lose your friends and have, in, in Jairus' case, have his daughter healed. So it was beautiful to watch Jesus deal with Jairus and lead him to joyful victory. As throughout this entire event, it was our Lord's words that made the difference. Consider the three statements that he made. In verse 36, at this point, Jairus had to believe either his friend or he had to believe the Lord Jesus. And no doubt all of his being responded with convulsive sorrow when he heard that his beloved daughter was dead. But Jesus assured him, be not afraid, go on believing. That was the literal translation from the Bible. In other words, you had a certain amount of faith when you came to me, and your faith was helped when you saw what I did for that woman. Don't quit. Keep on believing. So it was easier for Jairus to trust the Lord while his daughter was still alive and while Jesus was still walking with him to his house. I can imagine that. I can imagine how my heart would have sunk at that message that she was dead. But when Jesus stopped to heal the woman and when the friend came with the bad news, Jairus, he just about lost his faith. And that's not, let's not be too hard on him for that because I, I don't know. My heart would have sunk. I, I don't know if I would have totally lost my faith or believed. We probably have probably given way to doubts. When circumstances and feelings have overwhelmed us, and then we get a bad report like that, and sometimes God has delayed, and we have we had wondered why. That is shakes our faith a little bit, and that's when we need that's when the enemy can come in and throw those fiery darts. Well, God's not gonna do that for you, or God didn't hear you, or God don't care. Yeah, that's when we get all that. That's when we have to take those thoughts captive and choose to believe no matter what. Because there's absolutely nothing that is impossible for God. Hallelujah. Woo! I get excited just talking about Jesus, just talking about what he does, just thinking about, just feeling it in Jesus' name. So this is when we need to that special word of faith from the Lord and we receive it as we spend time in his word. In verse 39, when Jesus and Jairus arrived at the house, they saw and they heard the professional Jewish mourners who were, who were always summoned when a death occurred. The Jewish mourners came in and mourned. It was traditional for them to wail loudly and to weep loudly and to lead the family and friends in lamentation. So the presence of the mourners in the home is proof that the girl was actually dead. The family would not have called them if there had been even the slightest hope that that girl was still alive. So the, the 
Jesus said, the child is not dead, but sleeps. That was our Lord's words of hope to Jairus and to his wife. So to the believer, death is only sleep, for the body rests rests until the moment of resurrection. See 1 Thessalonians 4. The spirit does not sleep, for in death the spirit of the believer leaves the body. James 2.26 And it goes to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. See Philippians 1.20-23 It's the body that sleeps. It is the physical body that sleeps, awaiting the return of the Lord and the resurrection. See 1 Corinthians 15. Now this truth is a great encouragement to all of us who have had Christian loved ones and friends depart in death. It is his word of hope to us, the word of love and power. Verse 41. Unbelief laughs at God's word, but faith faith lays hold of it. Faith experiences the power of God. Jesus did not make a separate or did not make a spectacle of this miracle. He was sensitive. Once again, friends, this is example to us and how we are to, to act like Jesus. He was sensitive to the feelings of the parents and grieved by the scornful attitude of the mourners. And then Jesus spoke to the little girl in Aramaic, in Aramaic and he said, Little girl, get up. And Jesus added, I say unto thee, with emphasis on I, because it was by his authority that her spirit returned to her body. See Luke 8:55. So the words were not some magic formula that anybody might use to raise the dead. The girl, she not only came back to life, but she was she was also healed of her sickness, for she She was able to get out of bed. She was able to walk around immediately. Always the loving physician. Jesus instructed the astounded parents to give her some food, lest she have a relapse. Give her some food. Divine miracles never replace common sense human care. Otherwise, we are tempting God. So as with previous miracles, Jesus told the witnesses to keep quiet, like in Mark 1, 44, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 12. Perhaps the word got out for the mourners that the girl had been in a coma and had not actually been dead. According to them, there had not been a miracle after all. However, there had been witnesses to the miracle. So the law required only two or three witnesses for confirmation of truth. But for this miracle, there were five witnesses. Go back and read the scripture. There were five witnesses. So we have reason to believe that Jairus and his wife became believers in Jesus Christ. Though there's no further mention of them in the gospel record, all her life, the daughter was a witness to the power of Jesus Christ. 
How could she not have been such a great witness to her own parents? How could they not remember that moment so vividly? Because it was a God moment, because it was an eternal moment. As I said earlier, as doing this chapter, you never forget those moments where God does just touches you in a way that can you can't be touched in any other way. All of her life, the daughter was a witness to the power of Jesus Christ to everyone around her, to her, always to her own parents. So yes, God's servant is the conqueror over danger, over demons, over disease, and over death. That's you. That's you, servants of God. You are conquerors over danger, over demons, over disease, and over death. You have authority. So this series of miracles illustrates how Jesus met he, and he helped all kinds of people from his own disciples to a pair of demoniacs. And it assures us that he is able, he is more than able to help us today. I'm going to close here. This, this does not mean that God always must rescue his people from danger. See Acts chapter 12. Nor does it mean that he must heal every affliction. Seek 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. But it does mean that he holds the ultimate authority. And that we need never, 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 ever fear. And in closing, I just want to encourage you in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It doesn't even just say we are conquerors. It says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Jesus' name. God bless you each and every one. May your week continue to be blessed and strengthened in him in every way that you need it today.